Revelation, the, uh, the last book of the Bible, book of Revelation, uh, chapter 12 is where I want us to look into this morning. Revelation chapter 12 is the section we're going to be studying today, and I hope you're ready to jump in, go at it, hard work this morning as we study the Word of God together today. Revelation chapter 12, title of my message is The Shortest Gospel, The Shortest Gospel And I want you to have your Bible out, Revelation chapter 12, put a bookmarker there. We're going to go away from it, come back to it several times. Uh, But I just want us to focus in on this section of Scripture so that uh, you understand there's one verse that I want us to get. It's verse 5. But for you to be able to understand verse 5 and the context that I'm talking about it in, we need to read the whole chapter because this chapter describes the gospel from an eternal perspective, all right? From heaven's perspective and from hell's perspective, eternity, from God's perspective and from Satan's perspective, it describes the gospel in in a very clear and coherent way. Now, give some images that you're going to look at and you're going to say, well, that's kind of bizarre, that's kind of odd, and that's the book of Revelation. We're studying through the book of Revelation in a series called Storm Warnings and uh, the warnings of the impending judgment of God coming uh, when Jesus returns and everybody's going to go to heaven or hell. Uh, but in this section of Scripture, right in the middle of the book, he gives a description of the gospel from God's perspective, from Satan's perspective, from eternity's perspective. Now, it's right in the middle of the book because i got to tell you, Chapter 12, whether you understand it or not, is one of the key chapters in the book of Revelation. One of the most significant chapters, everything before chapter 12 leads up to it, everything after chapter 12 kind of tails away from it, and it's a significant chapter. So I hope you're prepared this morning uh, for the message and the study we're going to have and the significance uh, of this section of Scripture. Let's read together Revelation chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. This is the image, and remember, he's just opening, painting a picture. Don't try to figure out all the details of the picture. Just let the image be created in your mind. Uh, And uh, that's hard for us. We're visual people. We watch television to get the picture from the screen. But in literature, you have to work at it. Your mind has to think to see the image. So what I want to do as we read together, I want you to visualize the image shown of the gospel in this passage of Scripture. It says, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. Now there was a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And she was pregnant, and she cried out in pain, and she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. And his tail swept a third of the stars, out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her, uh, her child, the moment it was born. And she gave birth to a son, that's Jesus, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. In that one verse, the entire earthly life of Jesus is described. He's born and he's snatched up to God. He doesn't say anything about the cross, doesn't say anything about the miracles, doesn't say anything about the resurrection, but I just want you to understand between, uh, in that verse of scripture, the gospel, the story of Jesus is declared. Verse 6, and the woman went fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God 
where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, and he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice you heavens, but woe to uh, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. And he is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, and the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and a half time. Out of the servant's reach, then from the mouth of the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and to sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Get out your notepad this morning, your journal or the sermon section in your, uh, uh, in your program, your pencil. Jot down some notes this morning. I want to teach you three things this morning about the gospel, three descriptions of the gospel that are found uh, here in this section of Scripture, scripture Ephes, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 12. Three descriptions of the gospel uh, that impact your life and mine. The first description of the gospel is the gospel is a simple message. The gospel is a simple message message. Now I want you to understand the simpleness of the gospel. In the book of, uh, books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, we refer to those as the gospels. They really aren't the gospels. They contain the gospel. And, and uh, what we find there uh, are, are really two stories running together through all of those four books. Hang with me here. Help me. Uh, let me explain. Number one, there's the story of, uh, that happens again and again and again of the lives of broken people. Now, they may have an illness, they may have a disease, they may have a demon, uh, they may have sin in their lives, but it's, a, it's about their story of brokenness. There's another story that also runs through uh, those four books of the Bible, uh, and it's God's story. God's story. Jesus comes in the flesh. And he walks among people and he doesn't ignore people, but he sees people in their need and he touches their lives with the love of Almighty God. And eventually Jesus would die on a cross to cover the sins of all people and he would rise again. Now the gospel is simply the connecting uh, of those two stories. The stories of people that are broken and hurting and God's story. And it's the interaction of those two stories where salvation takes place and a person accepts Jesus as Savior of their life and begins a lifelong process of what the Bible calls sanctification. I just simply call it discipleship, where a person grows in what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 
Now leave here, put a bookmark, and I want you to go to the book of 1 Corinthians because I want you to see this in a small, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul here describes what the gospel is. And I want you to notice his description is exactly what I just shared with you. It's a story, the gospel is a story of two stories. It's about a person's story, what they've done in their life to mess up their life. And it's about God's story, how God interacts with that person and the salvation that comes in the middle. Notice what it says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, verse 1, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which I, you received, on which you've taken your stand. He said, I want to explain to you what the gospel is. He says, by this gospel you were saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Now, what's the gospel? Watch the two stories. In this case, he reverses the two. First, he talks about what God does. Then he talks about the impact in his life. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of them are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Does anybody remember what Paul was doing at the exact instant that God's story collided with his story? Where was he and what was he on his way to do? Anybody remember? He was in a city called what? Damascus, and he went to Damascus to do what? To kill Christians. He was so angry with God because God was moving in this new sect of Jesus followers that he wanted to wipe them all out. Man, his life was a mess. He was so prideful. He knew what God wanted to do, and he was on a journey to kill Christians. He had already watched one kill Stephen. Remember that? He was there. They laid all his, their coats at his feet. He was the most messed up person in all the crowd in Damascus that day. And Jesus in his light appeared to, G, to, to Paul. He said, Paul, you can be forgiven of your sins. It was at that moment that the story of God and the story of Paul collided. And Paul became a Christian. Not just a Christian, but Paul became a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ. They'll go back to Revelation chapter 12, and I want you to notice from an eternal perspective, once again, how, how the gospel of, uh, of all of eternity collides. From an eternal, uh, eternal perspective, we're, we're thinking about God, and we're thinking about Satan, and we're thinking about how it impacted them, and how that story impacts our life. Watch what it says. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon uh, under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head, and she was pregnant, she cried out in pain, and was about to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven uh, heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. And with his tail, he swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Now, we want to think of Bethlehem and mangers and wise men and shepherds as a peaceful time, and perhaps it was. But folks, I want you to understand, from an eternal perspective, it was the war to end all wars. Because at that moment, one writer writes and calls it the hinge of history. Another writes and calls it the, the, uh, the, the uh, sunrise of the scripture. At that moment, a baby wasn't just born. The God of the universe 
birthed his son in human form in the form of a, a baby in a manger. And all of heaven noticed, and all of hell noticed. And God was thrilled. Satan was furious. She gave, verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and the child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman, I don't understand all of this, the woman fled into the desert. They went down to Egypt, perhaps, a place prepared for her, for God, where she might say be taken care of for 1,260 days. But I want you to notice the next two verses, next three verses. And there was a war in heaven. I used to think that that was talking about the war way back uh, when Satan was thrown out of heaven, but that's not the context here. When Jesus was victorious over the grave and ascended back into heaven, this is what it says took place. It says there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down, and that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. And he was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. That's God's story. Do you understand that? That's God's work. That's an amazing, miraculous story. By the way, God didn't think up that just 10 minutes before Bethlehem. The Bible says before anyone was ever creation, created before the foundations of the world, God determined Bethlehem would happen. Isn't that an amazing story? The Old Testament was not God's first try that he finally gave up on, and then he said, okay, I'm going to send Jesus instead. The whole Old Testament was leading up to Jesus, every single word pointing to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That was God's story. Well, what about our story? Well, it's here in the same passage, verse 11. Uh, it says, verse 10, it says, For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Folks, the gospel is the collision of two stories. It's your story. I don't know what your story is. But your story's a mess. I guarantee it's a mess. And if you're here this morning, you say, oh, I've been in church all my life. I'm not a mess. I want to tell you something. Your life's the biggest mess here. All right? Can I get an amen out of that? And I'm not talking about you just getting saved and getting scrubbed up and washed initially. Man, what I have learned is that's the easy process Man, I want to tell you, when Jesus pulls out the Brillo pad and begins scrubbing on your heart, that is hard. Can I get an amen on that? Man, he's doing that every single moment of every single day of my life. That's a sanctification process. What I'm talking about is that if God's story is not, the gospel is not colliding with your life every single moment of every single day of your life, man, the gospel has not impacted your life the way he wants, it to be, he wants it to be done. We want to think, I'm saved, I got my ticket into heaven, it's like fire insurance, I'm going to get there, I'm not going to go to hell, all is good with me. Man, you ain't even begun to read the, read the Bible if you think that's what being a follower of Jesus Christ is all about. The gospel's a simple message. Your story, God's story, and where they collide. Number one, the gospel is a simple message. Number two, the gospel is a powerful message. It is a powerful message. Now I want you to look what it says there in verse 7 uh, down to verse 9. 
Uh, it talks about that war that takes place in heaven, and Satan understands the battle going on. But I want to t- I, I give you two things about the powerful message of the gospel. Number one, the gospel has the power to mend broken lives. Anybody here have a life that has been mended by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Raise your hand if you do, all right? Anybody have a life here that uh, needs mending? You don't have to raise your hand. Uh, but if you're sitting here saying, I don't need any mending by God, let me tell you something, you need it worse than anybody else, all right? And that's just the truth of the matter. The gospel has the power, though, to mend broken lives, even your life. The gospel has the power to mend lives constantly. I love the calling of Jesus' first disciples. It's recorded. You don't have to turn. The, in Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 16 to 20, the Bible says Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, James and John, mending their nets because they were fishermen. And he said, you come follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And immediately, the Bible says, they left their nets, and they followed him. Literally, a translation would better be, uh, be, they immediately, they left their nets to pick up Jesus' net and fish for him. You see, it's as if Jesus were saying to his first disciples, guys, leave your old nets that you've been mending for so long to pick up a better net. The net I want you to pick up is the net of the gospel working in your heart and in your lives. And what I want to do is teach you how to fish for broken people so that God can mend them too. Folks, God's been mending my heart all of my life. Let me tell you my story. Six days before my third birthday, my father commits suicide. He left the breakfast table, went upstairs, and took his life. I don't remember. I don't remember it. I was too young. My brother remembered it until the day he died. My mother still remembers it. I don't remember that day. But I want to tell you something. That event captured my life more than I ever could have imagined. Because that one event... Uh, man, it, it just what has been the focus of way too much of my life. Because of that one event, I have sought all of my life the approval from men for what I was doing because I never heard my daddy say, son, I'm proud of you. And for all of my life, I've used that one event to make excuses for bad things that I do. Now, I don't always say it, but I look back on it and I realize that that's the case. But I'm here before you today to stand before you to say that God has healed and he is, is continuing to heal that hole in my heart, that hole in my net. And out of that fixed hole, that net of the gospel of what God has done in me, I now have the opportunity to fish for other people who also have broken lives. Now, folks, that's my story. It's not your story. Well, what is your your story? That's my testimony, but it's not your testimony. What is your testimony? What is the brokenness in your heart that God has in his mending? Is it a brokenness due to addiction? Is it a brokenness due to uh, 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 marriage? Is it brokenness due to distance that you keep between yourself and everybody around you so they will never see who you really are inside the brokenness of your life? 
Folks, I want you to understand that if you will allow it, the gospel has the power to mend your broken heart. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how many people you've hurt or damaged. God can heal your broken heart. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation for anyone who would believe. Number one, the gospel has the power to mend broken hearts. It's a powerful message, but the gospel is a powerful message as well. Write this down, because the gospel is Satan's biggest threat. The gospel is a powerful message, number one, because it has the power to mend broken lives and hearts, but number two, because it's Satan's biggest threat. Keep a bookmarker here. I think we come back here in a moment. Go with me to the book of Matthew and the, uh, the, the uh, uh, 13th chapter. The book of Matthew, the thir- 13th chapter, and I want you to notice a statement here. Uh, Matthew chapter 13. Uh, by the way, as we're turning there, I did not read over in Revelation 12, but we already read it, about how Satan goes viciously after uh, the descendants of the woman, uh, the descendants of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus Christ, and uh, just powerfully attacks them. Why is that the case? The parable of the sower is one of the most remarkable stories, parables that Jesus ever gives. The story is given this way in Matthew 13, verse 3. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and he was, as he was scattering seed, the seed, some of the seed fell along the path, and the birds came and uh, ate it. Some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. Uh, but when the sun came out and plants were scorched, uh, they, and they withered because they had no root. Another seed fell among the, the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on the good soil, where it produced a crop uh, 160 or 30 times what was sown. And he who has ears, let him hear what uh, uh, the, the, the story has to say. Now the gospel is Satan's biggest threat. And he explains this in verse 19 to verse 22. He describes several different types of soil uh, that, the, that the seed was thrown in. He says in verse 19 that many people may get dunked. They may get all excited except Jesus is Savior of their lives, but they run away from Jesus and other believers uh, the instant that that happens without being connected. Why is that the case? Verse 19, he says, When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, who is that? Tell me out loud, loud. The devil, Satan. The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. And this seed uh, is a seed thrown on the path. Other individuals, uh, man, they get started in their Christian walk, but they bail as soon as life begins to get tough. Verse 20 and 21. It says the one who received the seed that fell on the rocky places as the one who hears the word of God and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only for a short time. Because when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. I've got to ask you, who is the causer of uh, of persecution and of trouble in the disciples' life? Tell me out loud, who is it? Satan, none other than him. We notice in verse 22 uh, the reason why churches are so absorbed with themselves and infighting and bickering and why there's so much disunity in so many churches, he explains in verse 22. He says, the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is like the man who hears the word and the worries of his life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it out, making it totally unfruitful. Now i got to ask you the question, 
Who is it that wants more than any other person in all of the universe for the church not to succeed? Who is it? Say it out loud. Satan. And he battles every step of the way. Folks, the, the, the gospel is not just a simple message. The gospel is also a powerful message. If you're wondering why your life sometimes is hard as a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you're wondering sometimes why you're standing alone as a disciple of Christ when everybody else is making fun of you, if you're wondering why every single day as a disciple of Jesus Christ you are struggling to overcome the same stronghold in your life that you've been trying to overcome for years, but you are so intent on overcoming the stronghold that you would give your eye teeth if God could breathe into your life a word of hope so that you could overcome that stronghold. If you want to know why, folks, it's because the gospel is a powerful message. It's a powerful message. It's not just about getting you saved. It's about cleaning you up and transforming your heart so that your life can be totally changed. It's about doing away with every activity of Satan in your life. Your hardness, man, your foul speech, your bitterness. It's about getting rid of your lust, your desire to follow other gods and make God the single person of your life. And that doesn't happen in a moment when you accept Jesus as Savior. It works in your life the rest of your life. And that's why the gospel is powerful. Number one, the gospel is what? Say it out loud to me. What? I didn't hear you. The gospel is what? Simple. Number two, the gospel is what? Number three, the gospel is demanding. The gospel is demanding. I want you to go back, if you would, with me, the book of Revelation and chapter 12 and verse 11. The gospel is demanding. And it says in verse 11, uh, verse 10 and 11, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of his brothers, who's the accuser of the brothers? Huh? Satan. For the accuser of their brothers who accuses them night and day before uh, our God, uh, 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 before our God day and night has been hurled down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Folks, I want you to understand that the book of Revelation is not the message that we uh, have made it to be. In the last 200 years in the Western church, we have made the book of Revelation a series of secret codes and things that we can find to try to understand the events that will just precede the return of the Lord. And Christians have fought and fussed about this, about pre-trib, post-trib, and all of that stuff. And none of that is what the book of Revelation is about. You know how I know that? Because Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 36, he says, nobody knows when I'm coming back. He says, the angels don't know. He says, I don't even know. There's only one who knows, and who's that? God himself. And so how presumptuous would it be of us to try to sit down and figure out what's going to happen and so that we know when it's going to happen? We don't know. It could happen tomorrow. It could be another thousand years. I don't know. I don't know. So what is the book of Revelation all about? The message of the book of Revelation is simply this. Listen carefully. 
The message is following Jesus isn't easy. Because it isn't just a decision to accept Jesus as Savior of your life. It is a choice to follow him as a disciple every single day of your life. I want you to write down three implications of the gospel that it has on your life. It touches three parts of your life. You've heard this before. You'll hear it over and over and over again. But I want you to write these down. Three areas of your life that the gospel impacts strongly. Number one, it impacts your head. Write it down, the word head. And I want you to say out loud with me, head. Say it out loud. Y'all are timid. Say it out loud. What? Head. All right, got it. Disciples of Jesus Christ must make a mental choice in every decision of their life, in their head. And the choice is this. Think about it with me. Am I going to follow Satan or am I going to follow Jesus as a, rejo- uh, as a result, result of the choice I'm making right now? heard about the preacher that was coming to interview at a new church and, and uh, they asked him, do you uh, preach, about, uh, preach against sin? And he said, I not only preach against sin, I call sin by its first name. And they said, what do you mean by that? He said, some preachers preach thou shalt not steal, I preach thou shalt not steal watermelons. Now, do you understand what I'm talking about, all right? Let's talk about making Jesus Lord of our heads by talking about some first name issues. The question comes when the disciple has a mental choice and a decision in his life, am I going to follow Satan or follow Jesus? That's not a just arbitrary kind of a language. Let's get to brass tacks. I know that a huge percentage of the men here, probably as high as 50% of the guys right here in this room, struggle with viewing pornography. You got your iPhone in your pocket, guys? I know that about half of you in the last seven days have been on that iPhone bringing up images of pornography. Let's get real. When the choice is there, are you going to choose to follow Satan in that just sinful stronghold in your life? Are you going to throw that aside and say, man, I'm going to pick up the word of God and I'm going to focus in on the Word of God. I hear all the time people say, I don't have time, preacher, to read the Word of God. you got hours to waste on the television, hours to waste viewing just godless, sinful trash on the Internet and your phone. you got the time. It's all about your choice. How about this? In your checkbook, does it say more about the splurging for yourself or the sacrifices that you're making for God? Let me explain. Uh, it's not wrong for us to splurge for ourselves every now and then. I'm not talking about it's wrong to take a vacation. I, I take vacations. I'll take one soon. And, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with having a, a car to drive. Nothing wrong with having a house to live in. Nothing wrong with buying even some nice things sometimes. Anybody like to buy yourself nice things? You know, we always like to uh, jab our wives about buying all they, they All they do is go out and shop. Guys, we don't buy little stuff. When we go buy stuff, we buy big ticket items. Can I get an a, a amen on that, ladies? You know, that's, that's true. Let me ask you this question. In the moment of choice, do you habitually splurge on yourself or do you sacrifice to expand the kingdom? 
Just saying. Just saying. All you got to do is look at your checkbook, register. You'll know the answer to that. Number one, the gospel must impact your head. Number two, it must impact your heart. Everybody say the word heart. Heart. must impact your heart. You see, disciples of Jesus have constantly uh, have a constantly updated, nonverbal testimony. I shared my testimony with you a few moments ago. You ought to be able to share your testimony, what God is doing in your life, in 30 seconds or 30 minutes. You ought to be able to tell it to somebody quickly, this is what God is doing in my life right now today. Because of the gospel, this is the change he's making in my life. If you don't have a testimony, maybe we need to talk about your relationship with Jesus, okay? Because maybe he's not really Jesus and Savior and Lord of your life. But the question is this, disciples of Jesus have a, a constantly updated nonverbal testimony because of the changes that Jesus is making in their hearts. Now you don't have to tell anybody that you're a disciple of Jesus because they know you're a disciple or they know you're a liar based on what you say. How do I know that? The Bible says, Luke 6, 45, out of the overflow of my heart, my mouth speaks. What are people hearing your heart say these days? Are they hearing critical words out of, your, uh, out of your heart every day? Are they hearing words that build up people constantly? Are they hearing proud words and boastful words out of your heart? Are they hearing humble words of a transformed heart by Jesus Christ? Are they hearing words that spew with anger constantly to everybody around you? Are they hearing words of love and tenderness? Are they hearing words of judgment? Or are they hearing words of peace? Folks, if the gospel is going to change anything about you, it has to be a demanding gospel that, first of all, impacts your what? Number two, your what? Say it loud. And number three, your hands. Write it down, your hands. You see, disciples of Jesus must have calloused hands from doing the one thing that Jesus commanded his disciples to do, and that's make new disciples for him. Now, there's good news and bad news here at Chester Christian Church. Man, it's good news that since the 1990s, we have taught and practiced, uh, taught you and practiced loving out loud with just lacks, uh, acts of love all around our community. And I don't have time to talk about Harrogate Elementary School and, and uh, uh, Detention Center and Beaumont. We go on and on and on. But man, just spreading gospel seeds all around with acts of love. Since the 90s, we've been doing that. For the past, past 10 years, we've been teaching about the power of prayer to pique the interest uh, and the gospel people around us. We've become a prayer-empowered ministry, and we've talked about that. All this year, my preaching focus, teaching focus, has been to create eternity-focused disciples of Jesus Christ to cause us to see that everybody we look at is going to spend eternity in heaven or hell. But folks, those things alone won't make many new disciples for Jesus. This year, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled with the fact that we have 17 new folks as a result of our ministry that are on their way to heaven, 17 people during this calendar year so far that we've baptized, and we've baptized seven of them in the last month, and that's an uptick, and that is wonderful. God's beginning to do something great. But I've got to ask this question. Why 17? Why not 117? Or 1717. Why? Well, I want you to look at your hands. Just look at your hands. And I want you to get this. Because the reason is in each of our hands. And it's the softness of our hands. 
We've been making a, being a disciple about coming to church to learn and to worship, and it is. But folks, being a disciple of Jesus is about hands that are calloused by relentlessly casting the gospel net of our lives, our changed lives, in the waters of a lost world, and hauling in miraculous catches of lost people for Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus is not about learning just how to fish from the master fisherman, but actually catch fishing and catching lost people for him. I want to give you this one commitment. And the, the commitment is this in the coming months, in the coming months, the coming months and months and months. You will not just be told to fish. You're going to be taught how to fish. We're going to celebrate the baptisms of only the Lord knows how many new people for Jesus you catch. You catch. Well, the gospel's a simple message. It's a, it's a powerful message. It's a, it's a demanding message. But as we gather together for Lord's Supper, I want you to hear one last statement that Jesus gives to his apostles. It's in the Gospel of Luke, the sixth chapter. Guys, if you're serving communion, would you go ahead and make your way back to the back? I, I just ask, nobody get up and walk out right now. God's doing something strong here. Only the men serving, please move right now. Luke chapter 14, Jesus says this. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If anyone does not carry his cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays, down, lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying this fellow began to build and is, was not able to finish. Or suppose the king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and he'll ask for terms of peace. Verse 33. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Folks, the giving up everything isn't just about money. It's about your heart. Unless your heart is surrendered totally to him, I don't care what you're doing with your hands and your head, it's all worthless. We're going to receive uh, the Lord's Supper right now. Uh, Clay, for time's sake, let's just hang the song right here and not do that. Guys, y'all come on and, and pass out. Uh, don't take communion. Just receive the cup and the bread right now. Just receive it. Uh, let me have one, please. Uh, here, Ron.